Welcome to the Fried Hartman Leadership Podcast from the Center for Excellence in Spiritual Leadership, the podcast dedicated to developing and encouraging spiritual leaders for the kingdom. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6, and we're excited to have you with us. Uh, my name is Dr. Josh Ketchum, and I'm with Fried Hartman University, and I'm excited today to have Dr. Joel DeWeese, who's a um, professor of biochemistry here at Fried Hartman and a good friend of mine. Uh, Dr. DeWeese, good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here with you. I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, you were with us in season one, and I would encourage listeners to go back and, and check that out. Yeah. I thought it was a, a really good podcast for thinking about um, how Bible and science are not competing against each other, but can actually uh, work together, and how we don't have to fear uh, science as Christians. And so a great podcast back then uh, that, with content you shared with us, and I'm looking forward to today. Uh, how, how's things been going for you? Things are great. You know, we're, we're up and rolling here. The semester is going, so uh, it's, it's a busy season, um, but we're, we're incredibly blessed and uh, just excited to get to do some of the things that we're getting to do. So, Yes, and we, we appreciate um, all that you do in the science department and our other science teachers and uh, your uh, defense of um, biblical creation. And uh, this, what you said, of course, you've been at this much longer than I have um, teaching college and it's amazing how the semester starts off kind of slow, mm -hmm. and then it's just like a it's like a slow moving train that just gets speed. That's right, and it just continues to get faster. That's right, as the semester goes, yeah. and it never slows down. And then it just ends. I like to say it like ends by running off a cliff, and then it's just over. That's right. And and, and college has has yeah. that rhythm to it, doesn't it? It does. It, it, there's a definite rhythm to it, and it and when it ends, it's done. Yeah. And and so you kind of have to, you find yourself wanting to kind of slow down, and then you realize. Can't, I can't stop it, right? The dates are it's going to come and go, and so I've just got to ride the train and and finish this thing strong. And uh, yeah, so we're still in that we're in that early phase, but it's building. October, you know, typically goes fairly fast, and then once you get to November, you're you're at Thanksgiving, and it's like okay, we're done. So uh, yeah, it's it, it it's a busy time, but it's also a lot of fun and neat to get to engage with students and to see how we can serve them. And so there's there's lots of cool opportunities uh, at hand. So. I'm trying to be available for that. We've got Servants Day at our university, and that's a big thing uh, here uh, really soon that, uh, you know, we, we like to get students engaged. And I'm also involved in the um, what we call our University Scholars Day, which is where people present their research. And so those proposals are due soon, and then we'll have that event in November. And so, uh, yeah, at that point, you're, you're kind of at the back end of the semester, really. And so we'll see how that, that all plays out. But uh, going to be busy in the intervening weeks uh, to get there. Yes, it was. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast and share your wisdom with uh, church leaders and with those interested in growing their leadership uh, who listen to this podcast. So we, you pr gave me some questions that I want to uh, throw at you and, and discuss here that I think will be very relevant uh, to uh, local churches and to Christians who listen to this podcast. So the, I want to begin by, this is some research you've been working on and and, of course, you make uh, presentations to congregations mm -hmm. and are interested in doing that on apologetic or creation uh, themes. And so some of the things that, that we discuss here today, churches might want to have you come present on at local congregations. But sure. uh, why have Adam and Eve, why have they become sort of a battleground um, in this topic of, of science? Uh, absolutely. I, th I think this is... Uh a really critical topic for Christians to wrestle with, especially those of us who have, you know, uh, younger Christians around us, people who are, you know, uh, newer in the faith or growing up, but also kind of learning modern science because 
uh, the message that we've heard for a long time, of course, of Darwinian evolution is completely at odds with the origin story we read in Scripture. And um, Adam and Eve are a core piece of that, right? So that's uh, a core piece of, of who we are, our identity, uh, our, our, you know, what God has placed us on this earth to do. We trace back to the commission and the instructions he gave to Adam and Eve. And so uh, they're really critical, right? But yet what we, the, the, the narrative we hear in uh, our society is, well, humans and chimps are 98% similar, so humanity evolved from, uh, you know, from this population of, of ape-like ancestors that gave rise to chimps and orangutans and all these other creatures, uh, as well as humanity. And so uh, were Adam and Eve even real? And so there are a number of prominent Christian scholars that are more or less taking the stance of, well, Adam and Eve don't have to have been real. You know, we can, we can still learn from them. We can gain from them. We can understand the, the kind of concept that they were meant to, to hold for us in Scripture without them actually being real people. Um, and so that's created some great division, obviously, amongst those who read Scripture and say, you know, it looks to me like these are intended to be actual people and not just concepts or placeholders. Um, uh, so you've got that kind of divide going on, and, and part of what happens is kind of on one side, you know, you've got the folks that want to accept, um, you know, the evolutionary storyline and uh, the long ages and all those things, and, and then a lot of times on the other side, you got the folks that, that want to have a more standard understanding of Scripture um, and an understanding of the origin of humanity as, as actual divinely created by God, separate from other creations. And there are folks on this side that, that would hold both old and young earth views, mm-hmm. but still want to see humanity as this unique entity, not as a outflowing from an evolutionary process. Yes. So, it, This is crucial because this is really what we do with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Mm-hmm. You know, is this myth or is this uh, actually a historical story? That's right. And I, th- and I agree with your uh, sentiments that Adam and Eve have been relegated to just a myth mm-hmm. and to any serious intellectual person surely can't believe that we started with just two people, Adam and Eve. And so um, so this is a battleground. So so why does the standard evolutionary story, what does it say? What is the, for those of us who are in churches and maybe, maybe an older audience who think, well, the Bible says it, uh, we believe it, and people just shouldn't, you know, shouldn't even be concerned with evolution. Why, why is, number one, kind of bring us up to speed on what evolution is saying, but then number two, uh, why should we care? Like, yeah. why is this important for, uh, for Christians? Yeah, great question. So, so if, we, if we step back for a moment and think about the, the origin of uh, the universe and so forth from a naturalistic perspective, meaning a perspective that says there's no supernatural, there's nothing outside of the physical realm, they have to have an explanation for the origin of the universe, right? Which is typically uh, the Big Bang is what's offered there. They got to have explanations for the origin of planets and things like that. Uh, and then once you get Earth, you've got to have an explanation for the origin of life. So we call that abiogenesis. Um, and then you've got to have an explanation for the development of the diversity of life. And that's where Darwinian evolution would come in. Uh, so sometimes we say evolution and we think of all of that, but really, Evolution is just kind of part of it or one component because you can think about cosmic evolution, uh, biological evolution, and so forth. So when we get to the actual biological evolution piece, what we're talking about is how did we get from whatever that first life form is proposed to be uh, to all of the diversity that we have today. 
and so the general picture is that it's a tree with a single, uh, you know, single trunk mm-hmm. starting at one initial, you know, kind of root that would be that initial life form, whatever it was, that gave rise to different life forms that branched off from that in different directions over time. Uh, and at some point, those organisms became multicellular and became, you know, more complex, like the animals that we think of. Uh, and, and branched off eventually, there's a branch leading toward what we would consider maybe apes and ape-like creatures, and then somewhere along the way, a branch broke off and came, became what we now call humans today. So that would kind of be the story. And this is, this is a process taking place across millions of years, obviously, really billions of years if you start with the origin of life. But, but for sure, along that, that you know, ape ancestor uh, tree, uh, you're talking about several million years of time is what's proposed there. Um, and that at some point humanity branched off and then you've got things like chimps and gorillas branching off. And so, um, so we're, we're on kind of a separate branch. So it's not, you know, people make the joke, well, if there are monkeys, you know, if we came from monkeys, how are there still monkeys? Well, that's not really what they're proposing. They're saying the tree branched off in different directions and some branches became orangutans and chimps and gorillas and another branch, you know, became uh, humanity. And, and this, this, again, this process is proposed to have taken place over uh, vast eons of time. We couldn't, you know, no, nothing anybody could really observe um, and then eventually gave rise to what we have today. And in general, uh, the thought has been up until the last few years is that that population that became human as, as a group of organisms that, that evolved into humanity was no smaller than 10,000 individuals, which you know, that kind of precludes any type of Adam and Eve scenario mm-hmm. if you got 10,000. And that's what uh, uh, Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight argued in their book. They're uh, theistic evolutionists, and uh, they defend Christianity, but they also say, look, we got to accept evolutionary science for what it is. And so in their book, Adam and the Genome, they propose that that is the case. Now, what's interesting is that book came out about 2017, and that was challenged uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, but that's that idea of the minimum population, all that has kind of been challenged. Um, you know, you ask, why should we really care about this? Why, why should this be important to us? And I think um, there's several reasons. One is we should always be concerned about the truth and, and pursuing what the truth is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes, you know, pursuing truth makes us have to change uh, what we believe about certain things, and I understand that. Uh, so there is that challenge. Uh, but pursuing the truth is, I think, part of what God has called us to do. He wants us to understand as best we can. Now, there are going to be things we can't figure out. That's okay, right? We have to learn to be okay with that. Uh, but when you, know, when you dig into Scripture and you start looking at how Scripture characterizes Adam and Eve and you know, the narrative in, in the early chapters of Genesis combined with references, uh, multiple references in the New Testament, there's no indication that Adam and Eve were symbolic characters. Now, there, there is some symbolism involved, right? Yeah. There's this type and anti-type relationship, things like that. But they were described as real people, and, and Adam's real sin brought real consequences. And so we have to consider that if we just jettison that, what, what else are we giving up, right? What else are we losing uh, if we just say, well, Adam and Eve were just kind of placeholders? You know, that, that story of uh, eating fruit in the garden um, you know, maybe that's just meant to give the Jews an origin story and not really, you know, uh, a real event. And I, I, 
I'm challenged by that because according to Genesis 3, God changed some things at the fall. Now, I don't know exactly what he changed. There's a couple things he specifies, but, but the consequences of that to me are, are unclear as far as how far-reaching that was. But we got to consider that he changed something about the creation as a result of that event. And I don't think that was just simply a symbolic gesture. There's, there's something that's actually been changed. Um, and so we have to consider that, that it, what do we give up, right, if we give up Adam and Eve as real people uh, and as, you know, forebears of, of who we are. So, yeah, it's really important that we, we take it ser- seriously and carefully. Of course, be humble in all of this, right? We, we don't have all the answers. Um, and, and so I want to encourage humility here. Uh, but I also want to encourage people to think critically, uh, about what it means if we let go of Adam and Eve. Yes, and this is a test uh, ground for many young people's faith. Sure. It seems that if we, as you said, jettison Adam and Eve, if we just kind of say, well, that story doesn't matter, or it is myth, then since they were referenced by the New Testament, by Jesus, and it is referred to as historically significant real people, then if we say they're not real, then we're really having a problem with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we also then bring into all other accounts in the Old and New Testament, which of those accounts should be discounted as not being real. And so in in many ways, this is a very important issue because it's about the authority and inspiration of Scripture. That's right. You know, we we have to look at it as a whole and say, okay, wait a second, if we give this up, what else are we jettisoning, right? What else do we get rid of? You know, the, the New Testament throughout alludes to or refers to the early chapters of Genesis in almost every book, you know, in some way. So we have to consider those very important uh, foundational information. In fact, you know, more than once it seems like Jesus reached back to the creation to illustrate a point. He said, I'm not going back to Moses. We're going to go all the way back to creation, mm-hmm. you know, to illustrate these points. And um, I don't think that was accidental. I think that was that was intentional. So um, so you're you're coming at it with... Adam and Eve are real. So what kind of evidence are you finding to prove this or what in your research, what are the views out there to support the biblical truth? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, let me let me frame um, really quickly uh, a couple arguments that are made kind of from the theistic evolutionist yes. side and mm-hmm. then and then we'll look at kind of what that looks like you know as we try to examine the evidence. So so I mentioned one, you know Dennis Venema uh, offers this idea that, you know, Adam may have been a, a figure out there in the past, but he wasn't maybe literally, you know, the progenitor of all humanity or whatever, uh, because humanity was a population of 10,000. And so what we've seen in more recent years is you've got uh, folks like there's a theistic evolutionist by the name of Josh Swamidas up at, uh, he was at uh, Wash U in St. Louis as a researcher, uh, scientist up there. Well, he offered a book where he argued that there could be a genealogical Adam, that maybe there was this population of humans evolving, but then God placed two people, Adam and Eve, especially created into, let's say, a garden Mm -hmm. uh, for a time, and they, you know, fell and left the garden and then joined that population. And with the population being so small, their children would have intermarried with the other children. And ultimately, they're somewhere in our genome today as far as their genetic ancestry. So they would genealogically be our ancestors, right? But they wouldn't necessarily be the parents of everybody alive, so to speak. So in other words, Adam and Eve existed. Right. God created them special. Yeah, they were real. But, but there was also evolutionary timeline that's is, right. is made compatible, and you also have 10,000 others out there who are existing. Right. 
That's right. And, and they're becoming human. So they're pre-Adamite type people becoming human, which raises all kinds of very interesting questions to, to consider about what does that mean? And th- there was obviously death before the fall and lots of other things going on there. So there, there's a lot of interesting things about that argument. There's another one, uh, William Lane Craig, who's a well-known um, uh, Christian apologist. He deals a lot with the existence of God and has some very powerful mm-hmm. arguments around God's existence. Well, he kind of says, well, maybe there's this idea of um, a, like a historical Adam in the sense that what if we go all the way back to the first creature that we would call from kind of like the homo, uh, like we've got homo sapiens, let's go back further. What's the first you know, creature that we would put into this grouping? Um, and maybe that's where Adam and Eve were, uh, is, is way back there. And he kind of just places them back there in history. And it doesn't matter exactly if it's which, you know, if it's Homo heidelbergensis, which is one of the ones that I think he uses in the book. It doesn't matter exactly which one it is. It just has to be, um, you know, whatever the earliest that we would consider, you know, on the way to being human. Mm-hmm. And he says, maybe that's it. You know, maybe that's the solution. So yet again, trying to take the evolutionary, you know, storyline, stick with it, and then try to plug scripture in there. Um, of course, there's challenges to these, right? Because you've you've got you've got that timeline that somehow you've got to reconcile with genealogies in Genesis. Somehow you got to reconcile with a, a lot of other things about you've got a lot of death and decay before the fall. You got a lot of folks that that lived and died. Um, how does Adam's sin affect them, right? Do they are they under the same uh, covenant and understanding and so forth? So just some things like that that we have to kind of really think about if you're going to try to mesh those mm-hmm. things together. So, yeah, you're totally throwing out the six days of creation. And, sure, and, absolutely, yeah. You know, that yeah. whole concept. That's right. So so I guess the question that I have before we move on mm-hmm. is why do, quote, Christians feel such a need mm-hmm. to come up with these explanations? In other words, why do they want to fit it in so hard to the evolutionary timetable? Yeah. Why, why do they feel like that evidence is so strong? Is it because of... A desire to fit in with the, all the popular kids out there that sure. that believe it is it a des, is it why do they feel so much pressure instead th- of just saying I sure. believe in Adam and Eve and sure. you know. yeah I think it's a combination so I definitely there's peer pressure mm-hmm. so so if you want to be accepted and respected uh, as a scientist in your field things like that then this is it's expected that you accept this storyline and go along with this narrative and if you don't you're kind of you're outcast and yeah. It's not necessarily that people are necessarily attacking you. They just, uh, the friends of mine that I've known that are got pretty high up in science and, and then acknowledge their views, people just kind of ignore them, act like they don't exist. It's like, we're, we're not even going to talk about you. We're not even going to talk to you. Just we're going to act like you're not even there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is a desire to fit in for mm-hmm. some. I don't know that that's everybody. Uh, I do think that there are folks who are genuinely convinced. Like, I don't want to doubt the sincerity. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, you know, uh, Swamidas or Venema, they're scientists. They have looked at the evidence, and they've come to the conclusion saying, when I look at this, this is what I see. Mm-hmm. You know, I see humans and chimps share 98% of their DNA, and so, you know, why would that be the case unless that one came from the other? Like, they don't see another possibility, another explanation. Um, and, and some of those arguments are, are very, can be very persuasive. Um, when you start looking into the DNA and the comparisons between humans and chimps, like those can be really 
uh, you know, really potentially convincing arguments because you say, well, yeah, they, they look so much alike. And I, I have to caution people at that to consider, um, yes, they are alike. And I've looked at the data, I've looked at the arguments, and, and I understand what, what's being said here. But we also have to consider um, if humans and chimps were created or designed to have very similar physical features, to live and breathe in the same environment that we're living and breathing in, oxygen, consuming carbon-based compounds, you know, and so forth. A lot of these things that are going on in our body can be exactly the same, right? The way our cells function on a fundamental level, for the most part, can be pretty much the same. Um, it's when you get to the higher development, things like that, that it clearly is different. And, you know, the 98% number, the way I kind of, uh, the analogy I give for that is, uh, they're 98% to 99% in the areas that they share, but there are also areas they don't share. Uh, and so the difference is actually a little bit greater uh, than that 98% number shows. In other words, if you take two manuals for uh, an automobile and you've got the uh, deluxe version and the regular version, there's going to be a lot of overlap between the two. But then there are parts that one may have that the other doesn't. And so how do you account for those differences? And that's kind of what we have going on here is where they match up, they are very close, but there are also parts where they don't. Regardless of what the number is, consider this. It makes a huge difference, right? Even if it's 2%, 5%, 10%, I've seen numbers that say maybe we're about 10 to 15% different mm -hmm. when you account everything together. The number doesn't matter because whatever it is, it makes a huge difference. That's right. I mean, you can tell that by the <laughs> right. visual inspection. They're, they're you know, they're, they are off in the bush or they are in a zoo and we're here, right? Yes. And so we're sending people to the moon and doing other things like this that they're not. And mm -hmm. so it's a huge difference. So we have to consider that. The other thing that I like to say about the genetic similarities is sometimes people point out that there are parts of the genome that we don't understand what they do yet that are the same in one versus the other, but it appears like they're kind of broken is what the way we describe them. And so why would they be broken in the same way in us as they are in chimps unless we evolved from the same source? And my response to that is, yeah, they look like they may be broken in the same spot, but maybe that's there for a reason because when we actually study it, we realize that region may not be changing, which means it might be really important. You see, in, in general, in our genome, if something is not maybe doing an important function, it's more capable of being mutated without there being a problem. But if something stays the same, there's a reason for it. And so if we got these regions that are very much the same but are supposed to be broken, maybe it's because they're not really broken. Mm -hmm. Maybe we just haven't figured out what they do yet. So I always caution people, if you say something is broken, uh, arguing something does not have a function is a really hard case to make mm -hmm. uh, because there just might be a function you haven't observed yet. So. Yes. Anyway, without getting too technical, I just wanted to point that out because that's probably one of the strongest arguments they make. And I said, well, it may look like it's broken, but maybe we just haven't figured out what it does yet. And let's keep an open mind here that this may actually do something very useful, uh, in which case it, would, it may make sense why it has not changed um, you know, in, in these two organisms because maybe it can't. Maybe it's needed for some particular role. So um, that's some of the things that we're starting to see, and, and a couple things that go along with this as far as evidence for Adam and Eve. You know, we, we have uh, two uh, different pieces of DNA in our cells that really point to the fact that, um, you know, uh, there, we could have come from an original pair. For instance, 
um, we have in our cells the powerhouse of our cells we call mitochondria. There's a small piece of DNA in the mitochondria. You inherit that from your mother, right? So your kids did not get your mitochondrial DNA, okay? They got Amanda's, mm -hmm. and my kids got Liz's. Mm -hmm. And we know that, so we can actually trace that back uh, in time and try to assemble across the world kind of a family tree of mitochondrial DNA. Mm -hmm. And, and actually, I've seen assemblies of this where they, where they put this together. What's interesting is that it does all kind of come back together to one node, which could be, in theory, this mitochondrial mm -hmm. Eve, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is right after that initial node, there are three nodes. And if you think about the flood, Noah had three sons, and they had wives, and we would be, the population today would have come from those wives. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, perhaps those three nodes could represent uh, those three wives. So it's just something to consider that maybe as we look at this data, we may be able to find some things like that that help us understand it. There's also the Y chromosome, which is just in men, and you can trace it back very similarly, and there's a concept out there of the Y chromosome atom. And actually, the Y chromosome is uh, worldwide, as we look at the differences between uh, men worldwide, it's really only mutated to a very low degree compared to what you might typically expect over evolutionary time. And so it's a little more consistent with a, a shorter time scale in that regard. So interestingly, we're, we're seeing that there are some things that bring that together. Another thing that just recently came out, um, and this is not a creation study, this was not somebody trying to argue for a young earth, uh, but, but a study uh, in one of the major science journals came out saying that um, according to their population, their um, calculations, looking back at how humanity could have evolved, they suggest that the population could have gotten as small as, you know, um, 1,000 to 2,000 people. Well, that's a big change from mm -hmm. 10,000, right? Um, and in fact, they suggest there was a bottleneck for maybe as long as 100,000 years. Now, what's interesting is that's a model, meaning they've put some math in, they've made some assumptions, and they've done a calculation. So models aren't reality. They're just approximations. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that in their model, um, they can't really tell the difference between whether it's two people or 1,200 or 1,800 or whatever the number is. Uh, so it's very interesting that, that you know, even modern population genetics models can actually get it down to a population of two. Um, now, they're, they're going to assume the time scale is much longer than we do, but part of that reason for that is they're assuming we evolved as a population out of something to something and not were created independently and have become what we are. So there's, there's some interesting things going on there for us to consider that, um, you know, as we dig back into some of this evidence, the, the trend appears to be marching closer and closer to a biblical story that, that Adam and Eve are real people and could have really existed and, and could have given rise to the diversity we have today genetically. And that's a big piece of this that hangs up a lot of scientists. They're like, how could we get the diversity we have from hum mm -hmm. in humanity from just two people? And uh, the, the models, there are models that can demonstrate that from a creation perspective saying, yeah, we can, we can get there. So let me try to put that in what I've often heard in, in local church dialogue, maybe. When I look around at the world and I see different ethnic groups, mm -hmm. I see, you know, Oriental, Asian, yep. I see African, I see... Latino, I see uh, uh, Caucasian, I see all these different groups. Right. Um, so how could all of that diversity? Mm -hmm. I see short, I see tall, I see right. wide eyes, small right. eyes. I mean, you know, you, you get the That's difference. Right. Mm -hmm. How could all of that come from two people? Right. And so 
what put that then in, in your scientific terms. Sure. So how does that happen? Yeah. Well, th- this is one of the amazing things about God's design, and uh, and it really is uh, a marvel of genetic engineering in the sense that God designed creatures, us included, that can give rise to diverse uh, forms of creatures, meaning uh, in the creation, I don't think God made all of the dogs that we have today. So I know you all breed dogs mm-hmm. and you have a particular breed. That breed has a history, right? And mm-hmm. it came from, and you could trace it back and say, okay, this is how we got to this particular breed. Um, but what's amazing is God designed the original dog kind, whatever those dogs were, to be able to give rise to the dogs you have and we have and so forth uh, and, and allow for that diversity. He did the same with humans, right? He and, you know, created humans that could give rise to other humans of, of diverse nature, whether it's skin tone, eye color, hair color, height, shape, so forth. Um, and, and this, you know, by the way, as a side note, Acts 17, this is a very unifying point here. Yes. Right? And this should be, again, something that we point out, that creation ought to be one that we sit around and we come together and we realize we came from one. Right. There's one race, and that's the human race. Yes. Uh, and if we're not careful, you know, we, we miss that point here. We're, we're all cousins. That's right. That's right. Doesn't matter what, what your skin color is. Doesn't matter, you know, how tall or short you are, whatever. Right. We have that connection, and we need to recognize that. Uh, but, yeah, as you think about, you know, that what, what God has designed in our bodies and in ourselves is a way for our cells to swap genetic information around so that you're not necessarily a product of, let's say, just your, your dad's DNA and your mom's DNA, you're actually a composite of their parents' DNA that's been mixed together in them and then given to you. And so you'll notice if you think back, man, I've got some traits from my dad's dad and from my mom's dad, but I also got traits maybe kind of from my, my dad's mom and so forth. You know, And that process of recombination, we call it genetic recombination that takes place, actually allows our genomes to kind of get mixed up so that our children aren't clones exactly of us, nor of exactly our parents, but they're a combination of those traits. Uh, And that process, that shuffling, uh, I think, continues to create diversity. Um, I host a a discussion group on Zoom, and I had a a presenter over the summer. Uh, He's a scientist up at another university, but he presented uh, all these different organisms, and he showed um, the variety of organisms within one particular species. And it was astounding to see, okay, wait a second, you're telling me from the same bird I can get one that looks like this and one that looks like that. And it was just the colors, the, you know, the feathers, all this. There was just so much diversity. You thought, how is that possible? Uh, and his point was God, through this recombination process, allows us to give rise to this diversity. It's like he's engineered something that can make uh, diversity. And that's a really a cool story, a really neat thing to consider uh, and something that I think is underappreciated because we tend to describe diversity as just coming from mutations in our genome over time. Well, I got this mutation, and so it's going to change that. Well, some of it may come from mutation, but I think a lot of it comes from the mixing of our genes during genetic recombination. And so as a result, we can give rise to this diversity. I think we also have to consider, too, um, there's some implications to this, okay? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I heard it described recently uh, by some scientists uh, from a creation perspective. They said, you know, if we look back and we consider, um, you know, we consider the flood, we consider creation, the creatures that existed at creation and then even the creatures that existed at the flood probably don't look the way they do today that they did back then. 
In other words, we always draw the Noah's Ark with giraffes walking in and grizzly bears and elephants and all these other creatures. That may not be what actually walked on the ark, but it may have been a precursor to that elephant or that giraffe or whatever. Um, not that they were evolving in, in the sense of Darwinian evolution, but that their diversification is taking place. And so were lions and tigers on the ark? Maybe not, but maybe some cat ancestors were, and they gave rise to the modern tigers and lions and so forth. Because uh, when you look in the fossil record, there's a lot of modern creatures we don't see back in the fossil record, mm-hmm. which tells us whatever lived before the flood was probably different. And the same may be true of humanity, you know, You've seen um, Neanderthals, right, with real big protruding brows, and they have kind of just different features that we don't associate with modern humans. Uh, it may be that we looked a bit more like that in the past, and, and that has changed over time, right, as our gene pools, as we continue to uh, go through rounds of recombination and mixing of different populations, um, you know, we get, we get to a place where we don't have some of the traits that maybe we had in the past. So... Uh, I don't know if that's helpful or oh, not, yes. but I just want us to co- kind of consider sometimes the way we, the cartoons we draw for our kids in, in, our, in our Bible class lesson books, uh, we, we fail to miss that they didn't look like us today, probably. You know, they weren't all Caucasians and, you know, had particular features or whatever. They probably looked a bit different, uh, but that was part of the way, you know, in God's design, we've been able to kind of diversify over time. Yes. We make the assumption that things were always the way they are now. That's right. But that's, that's not right. that's not true even in the short lifetimes right. that we live. Things that's change uh, yeah. significantly. You look at the height. You know, Abraham Lincoln, I forget the exact, but Abraham Lincoln was like, what, six foot one, six yeah. foot two, something like that maybe. Yeah. Uh, but he was considered very tall for that's his right. age. You know, and, and certainly we know that that is much more normative now. Right. Compared that's right. To, and so that's just been 150-something years. That's right. And so we, we do see this. Uh, sometimes they talk about microevolution versus mm-hmm. macro and mm-hmm. how... Yeah, uh, and so we do need to make that distinction. I like what you call it, Darwinian evolution versus uh, change and transitional change and things. Yeah. Well, we're we're getting low on time, uh, Joe. Sure. Is there anything? We certainly want to say that that Adam and Eve in the biblical story is true, and it's worth it's worth fighting for. And we're hearing a lot of voices in our culture that are saying that Christians can compromise that. And what we're saying is we should not compromise that because that also leads to a lot of other dangers and other problems. But rather, you're also adding to that that not only should we not compromise that because of the inspiration of Scripture, but that there is actually scientific evidence beginning to substantiate and prove that. Would that be a good summary yeah. of what you said? Sure, that's that's right. I think I think we've got to we've got to be sure to to be careful and to be humble. Right? We don't have all the answers, and some of these arguments I've put out here. We may find out, well, you know what, that's not actually a great explanation. There's actually something better, and that's, that's fine. But I want to at least put these out there to say, look, this is where creation science is going. These are some of the things that we're learning, and uh, we ought not to be afraid to look at it. I think we said it in the last podcast, but if Romans 1 and verse 20 is true, we ought not to be afraid of what science will find. Yes. Right? We don't have to live in fear of it, and, and I know a lot of folks do. I know a lot of folks in, you know, in our church pews, they come in and, and they you know, more or less are afraid of science, don't want to look at it, don't want to explore it for fear of what if I find something that's going to kind of, you know, nullify my faith and just discount it. And uh, I, I want us to have that confidence that we're not going to be able to answer everything, but uh, God's put us here for a mission and a purpose. He's given us dominion, 
Uh, and he wants us to explore and understand his creation. And he made it explorable and understandable. And so uh, I don't have any, any fear of that. And uh, while we're, as we wrap up here, I want to encourage people to consider uh, there's a new museum about to open um, in Dixon, Tennessee, at what used to be the Renaissance Center. It's the Wonder Center and Science Museum. Uh, and it's going to be exploring some of these types of questions. Uh, and so it's, a, it's got a full planetarium. There's a theater. There'll be a number of different types of displays, including a history of the Bible display and things like that. So I encourage people to consider checking that out. It's the Wonder Center and Science Museum uh, in Dixon, Tennessee. And it's, uh, it'll be kind of have its grand opening in October of 2023. Uh, so just, uh, you know, consider that there are folks out there trying to put this information out there, trying to understand it, study it on a deeper level. Um, but, you know, be in prayer about those of us who are studying this. There are a number of us who are scientists who are looking into these things and uh, trying to understand them, uh, trying to learn from them, trying to encourage one another. And uh, so, you know, we need, we need more scientists. We need more folks to kind of explore these things. And so, uh, yeah, if anybody has questions or would like for me to, to come and visit, I'd be happy to you know, speak with churches or youth groups or whatever uh, to talk about some of these things. Well, and we don't need to be afraid of it. I love that point. That's right. So I love it. We don't need to be afraid of it. Truth is truth. And we appreciate the truth that you're finding and through all the uh, genetic work you're doing, uh, through looking at this more micro level. Mm-hmm. And, and the deeper we go into the cell, the deeper we go into the genome, I believe we see God more and we oh, see the power of creation and the diversity right. in creation. And we, we come to realize how... Um, how evolution is really just not possible and is, is more impossible the, the more we study uh, creation and science. Yeah, uh, our, our bodies, our living systems, all organisms around this world are a testimony to God's you know, engineering design, and uh, I hope that we can, can take a look at that and consider that. that we don't have to be afraid. Let's, uh, let's trust in Him, trust in His Word, and uh, you know, we'll, the more we explore Uh, I think the closer we come to understanding, you know, what he has done for us. Yes. Well, we appreciate all the listeners out there. And if we can help you, if if Dr. DeWeese can help you, if I can help you in any way, please reach out to us and uh, continue to share this podcast. Uh, Share it with your friends on social media. And please um, let us know if we can help you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fried Harmon Leadership Podcast. For more great content and to see the services the Center for Excellence in Spiritual Leadership offers your local congregation, please visit www.supportingspiritualleadership.com. Until next time, remember, God uses ordinary people to lead His people into extraordinary feats.